Hi, good morning. My name is John, John Ring. I usually sit right down there. Um, and I am part of an organization that's called, uh, that's called Timber Bay. I want to tell you a little bit about Timber Bay. Uh, Timber Bay is a, uh, we have a camp and a community ministry. So we are here in Brainerd. And, and also even regionally, we're, we, uh, we've got a, we've got, uh, we meet in Crosby. We meet in, uh, uh, we meet in Pine River, in Pequot Lakes. Uh, right around here. Um, so, so what we do, and then we also have areas all through Minnesota. We have one in Wisconsin and one in Iowa as well. And, and so what we do is we go and we get referrals. Uh, uh, we, we get referrals from people like, uh, like social workers and, and probation, and sometimes schools will give us referrals, alumni will give us referrals. And, um, and, and we invite kids to come to camp, and we go to camp, and we have a blast. We have a lot of fun. And we also recruit and screen and train uh, volunteers from area churches. And so if you're at all interested in working with a, with a target population of at-risk kids, I would love to talk to you. And, uh, and, and, I, and I would, uh, we would love to have you, have you serve with us. Um, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is, if it's okay, is what I'd like to do is just give you kind of, kind of a picture of what it looks like, like what a, just, just like what it looks like at, at camp, okay? Um, and, and we have, actually, we have camp going on right now. There's camp, as, as we're here, there's camp happening right now. Uh, but but uh, what I want to do is I want to take you back to about a month. About a month ago, um, <clears throat> Uh, we had boys camp, and so there are some of you even in this congregation that, that helped out even preparing for that. For, uh, I know that Paul Sibizar went out and, and, uh, and groomed some trails, created and groomed some trails so the kids could cross-country ski. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be telling you a little bit about, we also went around, I took some kids out muskrat trapping, and so I've got to tell you, that this is free, the first service didn't get this, but, uh, but we went plenty short, so I, have, so I uh, have an opportunity to tell you this story. So we're out so I, so I invited the kids to get up before, uh, before breakfast even uh, to run the, any, any kids that wanted to. And I knew that not everyone would. But there were 17 kids that got, these are junior high boys that got up before breakfast to go run a trap line with me. And so we go and we run the trap line and we went all, we went all the way. It's a lot of work. We, we get done and, and by the end I only had two young men that were still running the, <laughs> running the trap line with me. Uh, one was named Buddy, the other one was Taiwan. And, uh, and we get done, we get done with the very last set, and I look all the way across the bay, and I can see this little furry thing running across the, sure enough, it's a muskrat. Well, Buddy just takes off, man. He just, he like books it. He's, he's going to get this muskrat, right? So he's running for all he's worth, and he, and he's running. And, and meanwhile, I can see another kid who's on the skis, and, and he's, uh, he's skiing across the lake, and he's yelling at the kid, don't, don't hurt it, don't hurt it, don't kill it. And, and Buddy's not having anything, man. He's going to get it. So he's running like crazy toward this muskrat. Here's what a muskrat fur looks like. So he's running like crazy toward this little teeny muskrat, running like crazy. And all of a sudden, he gets probably 10. I'm trying to catch up, but I'm, there's no way I'm going to catch him. And, and Buddy, this muskrat just stopped, and Buddy stopped. And the th I am not kidding you. That thing was this far off the air. He went flying at him. And Buddy screams, and he turns around, and he starts running like this. So this muskrat is following him across the lake. I am not kidding you. And here's the boy on the skis coming up and intersecting with them running like this as the muskrat's following Buddy. And he's still saying, now he's kind of laughing, but he's, you know, he's skiing toward him. And as he intersects, that muskrat went after the kid that was on the skis. I'm not kidding you. 
and he starts chomping on him, chomping on his, uh, on his leg, you know. And so he went from, don't kill him, to kill him, kill him. <laughs> and so, uh, so we harvested that muskrat. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then we had, we had chapel uh, that morning, and that morning it was on sin. Now the chapels usually are pretty similar for what we call our contact camps, the first time uh, campers that we have. Um, the first chapel on, on Friday night when we get there after school is that God created everything and He created everything awesome. And He created you and God does not make mistakes. Then the second, the second chapel is, is Saturday morning. That's the one that I, I gave. And that chapel we talk about how sin entered the world and screwed all that up. And it, affected, it affects all of our lives. And then the third chapel, which is usually Saturday night, we talk about how Jesus came to redeem us, gave his life to redeem us. Um, and then usually uh, Sunday, it's what are we going to do about that? And we kind of do a recap. <clears throat> so, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to come with me to chapel on, on uh, well, yeah, here we are. Here we are at chapel. That's what it looked like. And, and it's a little different than this. They don't all just sit in chairs like in straight rows and stuff. They're all gathering around, you can see. And uh, <clears throat> we started off telling them about what Proverbs says about some sins. And one of the things that it talks about, it talks about sin being much like a trap. And there are different kinds of sins, right? So this is a, this is a canine trap. It could be used for a, for a fox or a coyote. And, and the, probably the most popular set for this is called a dirt hole. So you dig, a, de- you dig a, a hole and then you stick bait in that. And then when the fox comes along, you're, the, the one that you, you're targeting, the, when the fox comes along, what he thinks is that he thinks that he's stealing from another fox. Now, he can, sm- he can smell pretty good, and he knows that something's not up. He is ver- very... W- Selinda saw a coyote this morning, and, and she, you could see how... And she videotaped, and you could see how wary it was. It was incredibly wary. So this thing is... So the thing comes up. It's pretty wary. It knows that it shouldn't be doing it, but it's just too overtaken by... It's just too overtaken by the, the temptation to get that meat, right? And so it, doesn't, it goes for the meat. And when it does, the trap goes off, right? Have you ever knew that there was something that you shouldn't be doing and you were doing it anyways, and then all of a sudden, boom, busted, right? And you're caught. Now, there's, there's another sin that, that um, actually not just a sin, there are several sins that the Bible talks about that are kind of like a snare, how many of you know the difference between a snare and a trap? I'm curious. You all oh, good, good. Oh, there are some. Good. So, so a snare oftentimes is just set right in, a, right in a path. Something that animals use this thing all the time. They all have to use it. They, they have to in order to live, right? And so a snare might be something uh, that, that, that's sitting in the tra- trap like this. And then when they go by, or the snare, as they go through, this, through the snare, it just kind of pulls, and they actually pull it tight on themselves. And that's kind of like a sin like, um, like greed. Okay, we all have to use money, right? We all have to use money, but the love of money the Bible talks about is evil. And, and, and we pull that tight on ourselves. It's just we, we use it and then and it's just before we know it, we're caught. The end result is death. In both of them, whether it's the trap, whether you get busted right away or... or or whether it's a snare and, and you've, you've pulled yourself tight, you know, it's pulled, pulled tight on you. Unless someone rescues that animal, they're dead. That's the, that's the end result of it. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? And so we, we actually skinned a muskrat in this. You can see the muskrat laying there on the table. 
Um, and so I, and I wouldn't do it here because not everyone really enjoy that. Junior high boys, they love it. <laughs> they, they love it. <laughs> later, later there was a mom that uh, that wrote Celinda and let her know that her son stuck the foot in the in his uh, in his uh, coat pocket. And a week later, they uh, they uh, noticed a interesting odor coming from there. <laughs> Thankfully, the mother thought it was hilarious too. I, but um, uh, but at any rate. Um, after that night when, when, uh, when our staff shared about Jesus uh, coming to redeem us, there were three young men that, that prayed and asked Jesus to, to take away their sin. To, they, they accepted the free gift that he offered and, uh, and asked Jesus into their lives. One of the young men, um, I had his dad <laughs> as a camper a way long time ago. He ended up getting sick, and so, uh, and so uh, his dad came to pick him up that evening, and as they're packing up, um, the boy said, Dad, there's something I need to tell you. He said, I asked Jesus into my life tonight. <laughs> we're going to be talking about celebrating today. Uh, this whole theme that we're going to be talking about in, in, uh, in Luke 15 is every one of them, there's a theme of celebration. And i got to tell you, though, you can celebrate and cry at the same time. <laughs> so let's dive into the text. <clears throat> Luke 15 is called the gospel within the gospel. It really is the heart of Jesus' ministry and what the gospel is all about. The gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Luke 15 begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. For those of you who are, who are rule keepers and like to fill in the blanks, how many of you love to fill, fill in the blanks in the, in the book? Oh, that's all. You guys are awesome. I, I don't do such a good job of that. And so when I'm preparing, I have to put them all together to make sure that they, they get done. Um, but it's so, so originally, these these, uh, these tax collectors, what's really happening is they're gathering around because they want to hear what Jesus has to say. But the Pharisees, they see it a little differently. They, they say, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now, some, a little bit, if we back up from, from going from chapter 15 back to 14, what we find is that, is that uh, Jesus has a ton of people following him. There are crowds that are following him. And we, we see him eating at the Pharisee's house, and he's given lots of challenges. He gives one great challenge. The challenge is, he, he's, and he talks to all He said, in order to be my disciple, you have to give up everything. The Pharisees, they knew exactly what that meant. They knew what it was like to sacrifice to follow God. The Pharisees accused Jesus of welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they're questioning now the legitimacy of Jesus' ministry. He was hanging out with people who didn't sacrifice like they did. Jesus doesn't argue. We don't have to convince people that we're right and they're wrong. Here's a simple mission challenge. <clears throat> Invite someone different than you to lunch this week might be someone with a different political view than you have. It could be someone with a different sexual orientation or religion. 
It may be that they look different than you or maybe listen to different music. The purpose, though, is just to get to know them. That's all. Ask them what they do for fun and, and uh, ask them about their family. Tell them what you do for fun and tell them about your family. But mostly, just listen. No pressure. You don't need to convince them that they need to change. Just enjoy their company. Can we start by doing that? So here's Jesus. <clears throat> the religious leaders are muttering about him. I don't know about you, but if I was accused of these things, I'd respond by pointing to all these crowds of people that are following me. Then maybe to further prove my credibility, I'd point out that I healed the lame and that the blind could see and maybe remind them that the dead were raised too. That's pretty impressive. But Jesus doesn't try to legitimize his ministry according to their value system. Instead, Jesus uses the drama of the theater to tell a story. He may have learned this form of communication when working with Joseph on the theater that was being built about the same time that, that, uh, that Jesus lived in Nazareth. So for us, you can see here, uh, oh, there's, you see Nazareth right there at the bottom? Then right above there is Sepphoris. Sepphoris was about three, about three and a half miles uh, from Nazareth. And, and that's where they were building this, uh, th this theater. Um, even now, there, there are remains of that of, of the, in archaeological digs. And in Anatel, there's quite a bit of that theater that's still left. And so we don't know for sure if, if that's where maybe where Jesus learned the theater. Um, but, uh, but we have an idea that maybe that could be where that, where that happened. So Jesus tells three stories that say what the Pharisees suspected regarding him welcoming and eating sinners and tax collectors is worse than they thought. It was worse because he goes out to the far country for them. It was worse because he tears the inside of the house apart looking for them. And finally, it was worse because the righteousness that the Pharisees were counting on to be in right standing with God did not allow them to enter the celebration with a Father who loves everyone. So Jesus begins, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Let's say he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I kind of imagine the Pharisees thinking, oh, he is worse than, than we thought. Now he's using the theater. But as Jesus appeals to their, self, self of, of, uh, their sense of self-righteousness, suppose one of you, they ponder well, yeah, yeah, I am, I'm kind of like the good shepherd. I'd go after that lost sheep. And then using this story, Jesus transfers the identity of the good shepherd to himself. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together. And he says, rejoice with me, I've found the lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than the 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. The Pharisees had formed clubs in the local towns that were called the Society of Friends. So when Jesus uses this language, he was contrasting the calling of the friends together to celebrate 
to the Pharisees who were mad because Jesus was bringing in those that didn't keep the law. What do you think that Jesus meant by the 99 that didn't need to repent? I think he was being sarcastic. If the shepherd left the 99 in the open country, wouldn't they be lost if they're not back, back in town celebrating with the shepherd? The lost sheep is a symbol of repentance. What does the lost sheep do in order to be found? Nothing. Other than it agrees to be found. Jesus develops this even more by continuing with this story. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me! I found my lost coin! In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus using a woman to portray himself, I think was a stretch for our friends the Pharisees. Just like there was an image of the king on the coins, both the lost coins and the found coins, all are image bearers of God and have equal value. In a sermon entitled Rescuing Truth from Familiarity, the late New Testament scholar Dr. Kenneth Bailey, who lived and studied extensively in the Middle East, gives this account. <clears throat> there is a son who asks his father for his share of the inheritance. In the Middle Eastern culture, it would be like saying, Dad, drop dead. The father is supposed to take his left hand, which is worse than the right hand, and strike him on the fa face with the back of his hand, which is worse than the front of his hand, and then drive the kid out of the house. But he doesn't. Instead, he reprocesses his righteous anger into grace. After reprocessing his anger into grace, he extends an unexpected, costly demonstration of his love. He gives him his inheritance. The boy leaves town after a few days. Why does he leave after a few days? He had to cash out, right? You can't take property with you. <clears throat> he leaves after a few days because it takes a while to sell the property. Not only does it take a few days, but he, it also goes for rock-bottom prices. The only people who are willing to buy the property are people on the fringe of the community who don't really care about the family. It'll be tough because the people who care now know that there's been a breakdown in the family. Wait, you're selling the orchard that your grandfather planted? What? You're selling your soul. I don't want to have anything to do with you. But he does find some buyers and he cashes out. We know what happens. He goes into the far country and he loses or he wastes the money. He finds himself feeding the pigs. Why doesn't he just go home? The Jewish people of the time had a ceremony that was called the Kazaza ceremony. This was the cutting off ceremony. It was performed when a young man married an immoral woman or lost the family inheritance to the Gentiles. How do we know the prodigal son lost the inheritance to the Gentiles? Yep, you guessed it. He was feeding the pigs. And you know in Jewish tradition, pigs are unclean. They're not kosher. 
So we know that he was, he was feeding Gentile pigs, and that's where he lost his inheritance. If the young man even dared to show his face back in the community, they'd take a large earthen pot full of burned nuts and burned corn and throw it down in front of the man and exclaim that this man was cut off from the community, and they'd have nothing to do with him. So the young man was feeding pigs, not getting enough to take care of his daily needs, let alone having enough money to repay his, his father's estate for the money that he lost to the Gentiles. In verse 17 it says, when he came to his senses. Now in Western culture, we've taken that to mean that he repented. Bailey doesn't think so. Bailey suggests that he understands that he is not going to survive here in the far country and comes up with a plan to go back to his father and manipulate him into being able to work off his debt and be restored. He plans to say, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me your hired man. The son's plan was to work his way into the father's good graces and then repay what he had lost. He had a plan that maybe could work. But that's not what happened. <laughs> the father rushes out to the edge of town. He throws his arms around him and he begins to kiss him. He reaches him before the townspeople can, re can respond with a kazaza. At the edge of town, the boy was still lost. He's rehearsing in his mind what he's going to say to the father. I used to be conceited, but now I'm a nice guy. I'll be glad to shovel the manure and paint the barn and till the fields. I'll even save up my money and I'll pay back all the money that I lost. <clears throat> but the father supersedes the amends of the son by again extending unexpected and undeserved grace. The son starts with what he was rehearsing. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't finish with his, his plan for being a hired man. Why? In the Western world, we've said because the father interrupted him. In the Middle East, they have for centuries interpreted it to mean that he finally repented. Like the sheep in the first part of the story, he allowed himself to be found. If he allowed himself to be found, that meant that he had to give up all preconceived notions for how he was going to solve his problems. Even what he thought with the, the even what he thought the problem was in light of the father's love was exposed as wrong thinking. It wasn't about the money. It was about the relationship. The father coming out to the son is a symbol of God in, in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The robe, the ring, the sandals, they all had meaning and symbolized belonging and sonship. We know that the son agreed to be found and the father and son relationship was restored because the father did not say, My son was lost and... Oh, no, he did not say, my son has gone on a long journey and has returned. What he does say is, my son was lost and I found him. He was dead, but now he's alive. Let's celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
The servant was like the Greek chorus in the theater. They would report what was really going on in the story. Well, your brothers come and your father has killed the fatted calf because your, your father has received him. The word translated is shalom, or peace between two entities. That's why the older brother was so angry. If the servant had just said, oh, your brother returned and he's doing okay, the older son would have thought, dad has not yet decided what to do with my younger brother. So I can go in, I can greet my brother and the other guest, then after the party's over, I can plead my case. And I can say, throw the bum out until he pays. <laughs> but it's too late for that. Shalom has happened, and his point of view is lost. What does he do? He gets furious. He refuses to come to the celebration. This is a bigger insult to the father than the younger brother privately asking for a share of the inheritance. It's like publicly degrading your dad at the wedding reception of your sister. The father is supposed to just ignore him and proceed with the banquet. He doesn't. Once again, the father has to reprocess his anger by extending unexpected and undeserved grace. He did it toward the son who broke the law and now to the son who kept the law. The father has to publicly humiliate himself by going out to address the son who has disrespected him. Is the older son impressed with the cost of the love that was shown him? Nope. He starts shouting, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. People have died over accusations like that. This is extremely serious. The older brother is shouting out of control. The father is expected to say, Enough! Lock him up! I'll deal with him later! He doesn't. He pleads for joy. The curtain falls. Jesus is on stage as the father. The audience is on stage as the older son. The Pharisees have to answer the question, what do we do with Jesus? And so do we. Let's pray. God, we are uneasy with you as a question. An answer we can control. But you are the question that we need to wrestle with. We need you. Help us to respond to you and accept your invitation to celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.